Thank you, worship team. I love being led by people who are not just excellent musicians, but actually believe what we're singing. And I know all of these people, and they do. And they're living it out. And that's integrity. That's being led in worship with integrity, and I'm thankful for that. Beautiful. I would like to go back and look at some of the lyrics of the song we were singing before the offering. Listen to these words. They're stunning. O fount of love, divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side. So love needs definition. Man, talk about a word that gets thrown around like crazy and it's defined all these different ways. Well, the Bible doesn't leave it vague. It says if you want to know what love is, you look at God sending his son and his son willingly dying on a cross for us. That's where you see love most clearly in all of human history. That's what the Bible says. And, O fount of love, divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side. So his sacrifice, his death in our place, is where we see God's love most clearly. Where sinners trade their filthy rags for his righteousness applied. That's the gospel. We, we bring nothing but our sin. We bring nothing but our unrighteousness, and he gives us his righteousness. It's a really bad deal for God. But he's not in it for a good deal. He's in it to display his grace to us. It's, it's the most amazing thing you could ever ponder. Next, next line's beautiful as well. Mercy cleansing every stain. So we have righteousness. We have cleansing of our sinful, stained condition. Now rushing o'er us like a flood. There the wretch and vilest ones stand adopted through his blood. Oh, those are strong words to be called. It, yeah, we're calling each other. We're calling ourselves wretches. Vile ones. I know how offensive that can be in our culture, but that's what the Bible says. We just want to tell you what the Bible says. And, and it says that in our sinful condition, that's a good description of us, wretched in our condition, in our rebellion against God. Vile. We are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We are nothing but objects of wrath, inheriting nothing but wrath from God. His righteous judge, judgment is rightly on our heads. We are wretched and destitute. Yes, not flattering. These are hurt your pride words. But this is what the Bible says. And we're, I'm grateful God doesn't pull any punches about our sinful condition for the sake of temporary self-esteem. And he tells us the truth. He says we're wretches and vile ones, but that's not the end of the story. He moves toward wretches. Like you and me, he, he moves toward vile ones like us and he makes us his children. He adopts us into his own family. He forgives us. He declares us righteous in his son and he adopts us into his family. Some of you know we just three weeks ago uh, completed our fourth adoption. Thank you for praying for us and supporting us and feeding us and helping us and being part of this with us. It, uh, we would not do this if we didn't know we had a church to help us raise our kids and go through this process together. Thank you. I don't know how people go through challenges without a, a church family to, to help through. So thank you for the way you've cared for us. But, but to be in the role of God, the adopter, has been a joyful thing for us to ponder our own adoption. 
And, and that's what happens. We're adopted through his blood. We stand adopted. The wretches and vile ones now have become children. We're adopted through his blood. And then the next stanza says this. O mount of grace, to thee we claim. The place the cross stood. From the law hath set us free. Amen. Not because God doesn't care about the law, but because he saw it fulfilled in his son. Once and for all on Calvary's hill, love and justice shall agree. Please never think that God's love means justice doesn't matter, that he doesn't care about it. Oh, no. His law reflects his character. He's an all-just God. He would never ignore his justice. It's just he satisfies his justice on the cross. In Christ's obedience and perfect sacrificial death, his justice is, is satisfied. And so love and justice is what's happening on the cross. And then the next line says, praise the Lord. It all leads to praise. The price is paid. The curse defeated by the Lamb. We who once were slaves by birth, Sons and daughters, now we stand. Is that amazing? Set free from our bondage to sin and now adopted sons and daughters. Just astounding. And then this. Oh, well of joy is mine to drink for my Lord hath conquered death. Victorious forevermore. The ancient foe, the, the enemy of our souls, the accuser of the brethren is laid to rest. Yes. Love it, love it, love it. Goodbye. Yes. And then, that's how it finished. Hallelujah, Christ is King, alive and reigning on the throne. Our tongues employed with hymns of praise. Glory be to God alone. Oh, see, worship flows from the gospel. That's Christian worship. You can sing nice things about God, but, but when, it's, when it's worship at its core, it's God in Christ reconciling the world to himself that we worship out of more than anything else. So when we say gospel-centered worship, it's been interesting in my life. I used to love some hymns, but because they don't have much gospel in them, I don't love them as much as I used to. I, I, I've, I've found myself more and more just loving hymns that get right to the center point. Uh, I'm not going to name any of the ones that I don't enjoy that much anymore because I don't want, well, maybe I should. No, I won't do that to you. Um, and they, you know, they sing about f thanking God for waterfalls and things, but, but they don't really get to the guts of it. Uh, so, I kind of, anyway, all right, so beautiful. Yes, that's the gospel. That's what we're doing here. And that's what we're going to be hearing about this, this song, like all the ones we were singing this morning, beautifully gets at the point of this morning's passage. Would you go to Mark chapter 5? Here's what I want to do. I want to read through this passage with you. I want to hear from some of you what you think is especially important in this passage. So read attentively with me. And we'll highlight a few things you don't want us to miss. And then I'll dive in and make some conclusions for us. You ready? Mark 5, beginning at verse 21. Help us, please, Lord. Mark 5, 21. If you need a Bible, please raise your hands. Our ushers would love to bring you a Bible. And you can keep it if you'd like as our gift. We'd love to dig into the text together. Here we go. You ready? Mark 5, 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, other side of what? Well, He's coming from the area of the Gerasenes, whereas Jackson helped us see last week, he healed this demon-possessed man in this Gentile area, this unclean place, and now he's returned to Jewish territory. 
the other side of the sea. And when he gets there, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, an important person, socially speaking, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately... The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the, rulers of the, the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. For she was 12 years of age, not a baby. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them 
that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. So good. All right, let, let's dive in uh, to make, make some points here. Uh, wonderful passage. Uh, and we, we see Jesus in Jewish territory, as we said. And it, it, the story starts with this meeting with Jairus. It says, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue. Many commentators think to call him that, he, he was the ruler, probably the lead ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum. So he's, he's sort of the head elder. He's deciding who's going to do the reading and who's going to, to bring a message and, and how the order's going to go and running the synagogue. And please, once again, I want you to remember that these are real people in real places in real times. Actually, this is a photograph that I've shown you before of the synagogue In Capernaum, maybe, well, maybe it's nighttime in Capernaum. Um, anyway, um, it's a real place. And if we have a photograph in a second, I'll show you. Anyway, it was a real place. And you can, there yeah, it is. That's, that's the this synagogue in Capernaum. This is uh, built on top of where the original one was. And there are mosaics you can see from the first century right on that site. But these things really happen. Don't think of these things as these big mythical ideas. No, these are real people and places and times. And this is the synagogue area where Jairus would have been running the show there is this elder. This is the inside of what it, what it, where it was. So real places, real times in Capernaum. And so this man's very important, very prominent, influential, probably of means, and he comes up to Jesus. And seeing him fell at his feet. A very humble posture for an important man. Socially speaking, he was more important than Jesus. But he's come to realize something about Jesus and his relative relations to him. So he gets on his feet and his physical posture communicates what he's come to recognize about Jesus, a place of dependence. He's this ruler and he falls at Jesus' feet. And he says, my little daughter's at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. And Jesus goes with him. He grants his request, and Jairus is no doubt saying, oh, this is wonderful. This is so good. But then things take a detour from how they no doubt think it's going to go, including the disciples. And if you've read before different disagreements and arguments and requests the disciples and even uh, their mothers have had, like, oh, who's going to be the greatest, and what's this going to look like? They had all sorts of wrong ideas about what Jesus' ways and kingdom was all about. So I have no doubt when they say this, see this important man, Jairus, ask Jesus for a request, and then Jesus is going to grant it, this is looking good for the ministry. Right? A prominent, influential, probably wealthy man is now going to have his needs met by Jesus and then he'll become part of the deal and we'll, we'll have more influence and maybe have been well-intentioned, but, but it's misguided because as we'll see, Jesus doesn't base anything on those societal differences. So this, this man is important. He's got influence, but Jesus takes a detour from meeting his needs the way he expects him to. And... This woman has Jesus do something very different than he's expecting too, right? 
She, she wants healing. Jesus wants something more for her. We'll, we'll talk about the details of this, but this story is filled with unexpected detours and delays and a really hard circumstances. A woman for 12 years with this disease and a, a man whose daughter's dying and all sorts of things that are a source for frustration and doubt and discouragement and even anger and bewilderment. And I have no doubt you've all experienced those feelings. Maybe some of you have gotten to the point where you said, see, that's why I don't believe in God. Because any good God who's all-powerful wouldn't have a world filled with so much mess. That's pr- I've, I've been told that's the number one reason people don't believe in God. But would you please realize something? And if that's you, can, can we just talk for a bit? If you're frustrated with the evil in the world, the difficulties in the world, the, the hard things in the world, you really don't have any reason for that frustration, for the problem you have, if you don't have some sort of assumption about a good God who's powerful enough to do something about all the mess. It really does take an assumption about the God we find in the Bible to have a problem at all with the way things are. So, so please realize, if you're still frustrated in some way, maybe there's a vestige of belief in God that's hanging around. It must be, or else what are you frustrated about? What's there to be frustrated about if everything is random chaos and survival of the fittest and climbing up the food chain? I, really, what, what's, there's no place for the way things are supposed to be. But you see, the God of the Bible actually invites the problem of why? Why are things like this? And there's something about the God of the Bible, his character, and the covenant he makes with his people where he says, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Follow me in my ways, and, and things will go well for you. That invites the problem. And apart from the covenant and the character of God, you really don't have a basis for the problem. And it's actually very Jewish to argue with God in a way with open hands, says, uh, why? Why is this like this? You know, fiddler on the roof. He's singing, right? And, and, and there's that great line that Tavia says, remember? Lord who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed I should be what I am. Would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? Can you not just fit this into your plan? Why? Why, why am I poor? You made a lot of poor people. The only reason Tavia talks to God that way is because God's made a covenant and really invited that kind of interaction. In the movie, right when he finishes the song, he steps in manure as if to say, ah, never mind, Tavi, it's not, <laughs> no, nothing's going to change. So we have some assumptions about God that actually create this problem. So how do we deal with the problem? So if we are saying, all right, I do believe there's a God who's powerful enough to make things right, and I do believe he wants things right, so how do we solve the problem? Because it's a problem. How do we solve it? Well, we've, we've got the problem in this passage. Things are hard. There's a little girl dying. There's a little woman under great, great social, religious, emotional, relational, familial, financial crisis. I mean, it'd be hard to argue anybody in the Bible has it worse than this woman. 
If you understand her plight, it's horrific. She, she is outside of society. She's in a permanent state of uncleanliness religiously. She can't then be part of society. She's no doubt lost her family, her marriage if she had one. She spent all her money on what a lot, were a lot of hocus-pocus, ridiculous, attempted solutions at this sort of thing. If you read some, some rabbinic teaching on how you deal with this kind of a disease, it's just tormenting what she's gone through. She has no place in society anymore. She's out of money, out of solutions. She's desperate. But here's the thing. We need to realize that God's ways are so different than ours. God is constantly, here's the first point. God's kingdom's upside down from how we think it should be. God's constantly defying our intuitions, our expectations, and most certainly our plans, our agendas. We love bringing God our agenda often in pride, and get pretty miffed when things don't go according to our plan. And the story is filled like life is with lots of things not going according to plan. They, they stop on the way. These two people are desperate, and Jesus stops on the way to healing this man's daughter. And this man is so different than the woman. He's actually capable of giving them some social capital, elevating Jesus' ministry. And Jesus, on the way to his house, slams on the brakes. For a woman, in the society not looked very highly upon, generally speaking, and with all of these other social, relational stigmas, she's poverty-stricken, she's making everyone around her unclean, and Jesus stops. And he has an interaction with her. He stops the progress to Jairus' house. I bet the disciples were really annoyed by this, and Jairus is saying, what? I mean, even medically speaking, the little girl's dying. The woman's had this 12 years. If you went to the emergency room, and there was a, woman, a little girl dying, and a woman who's had this chronic illness for 12 years, and the doctor decided to pay attention to the one with the chronic illness, you'd sue him for malpractice. You would, That's not what you do. See, when you're bound by circumstances, you make calls on the spot, and you'd never go to the chronic illness as opposed to the acute illness. You'll always go to the pressing need, and it was obvious the pressing need was a little girl, and Jesus didn't play that game. There's no urgency for him. There's, there's no time boundary. There's no problem bringing her to life. It's not like fever Bring her to life. Whoa, man, I better hurry up and get there. Jesus is running the show. He's got it. He's not subject to these things, but they're so different. But did you notice how they're the same? Did you notice how different Jesus' ways are than our ways? You've got this important man in the society, and Jesus makes determinations not based on any of those things. But something much more important, something much deeper he's up to in their lives and in ours. He stops. He, he doesn't pay attention to this prominent man who's got this more acute need. No, he says, I'm going here. There's something I need to do here. And it's so different than you'd expect. See, Jesus recognizes they're really both in the same category. I, I love this image. You've got this important man with all this social status. And you've got this woman who's got nothing. But did you see the posture both of them have before Jesus? 
It's the same, isn't it? On their face at his feet. All the man's social status and influence and things his gender would give him and and, and things the religious system would give him mean nothing when his little girl is dying. None of that matters at all. He has no control over life and death. He can't fix the problem. He's on his face just like the woman. You see, they're the same. They're both human. They're both desperately needy. God only saves broken people. He only uses broken people. You can't be a Christian unless you recognize your desperate condition before God and get on your face at the feet of Jesus. Oh, please, don't ever think Christianity is some elitist religion for people who have it all together. That is so untrue. I hate that that's the perception some people have. Find a Christian who will tell you the truth and they'll tell you that the only way you can become a Christian is by getting on your face at the feet of Jesus because you've run out of any other solution. You've gotten to the end of yourself and the sad thing is, is we Christians can get to that point and then try to act the rest of our lives like we never got to that point. Like now that Jesus saved us, we've got it all together. No, it never ends. Our desperate condition, our neediness before God never ends. Please don't think Christianity's for those who have it all together. It's just the opposite. And if you're a Christian who thinks that's how you need to be, oh, give that up. Be free from that. God only uses broken people. He only uses people who get to the end of themselves. And and these two are in the same category. They are bound by their brokenness. They're bound by their utter dependence on Jesus. And they have the same posture. All the social differences are out the window when we recognize our sinful condition. And and we've all got to recognize this. It may not be flattering to your self-esteem, but the position of the Christian is on her face. The position of the Christian is, is laying out with nothing in our hands, depending on Jesus. They needed faith. That's what they need. Christianity is not an elitist religion. I love Proverbs 22 too. The rich and the poor meet together. And you want to say, when? Sadly, not enough in the church. When do the rich and poor meet together? Oh, here, the Lord's the maker of them all. We're all equally, utterly, absolutely dependent on God. And there's an equalizing effect creation itself has and then sin has. Everybody's laughing at Jesus. The crowds, even the disciples, don't roll in their eyes. Another gospel tells us it's Peter. He's the one who said, Lord, everybody's touching you. Ask who's touching you. Duh. What a dumb question, Lord. Can we keep going to Jairus' house, please? And Jesus isn't deterred by any of those things. And he's wanting us to realize that the way up in his economy is down. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit. The way to life is death with Jesus. The way to find your identity and to find fulfillment is to make your identity and your fulfillment unimportant to you. And making that of others important. See, uh, uh, 
don't look out for your own interests merely, but also the interests of others. Consider others as more important than yourself. Live the way Jesus does. And that's when you find your identity. That's when you find fulfillment. The Bible tells us that a fulfilled life is a life serving others. The way to find out who you are is to focus on loving others. The way to find yourself is to lose yourself. Paul puts it this way. God's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, the lowly and despised things to even the things that are not, to bring them to nothing so that no one would boast in his presence. God's ways are so different than ours. And one of the main ways is point two. So God's ways are radically different than ours. Two, God always demands more than you realize. And he always gives infinitely more than you could ever imagine. You see, this woman wanted to get healing. She wanted a miracle. Jesus wanted a meeting. She wouldn't, Jesus loved her too much to allow for her to slip away in privacy. That's what she wanted. She wanted a miracle. He wanted a meeting. She wanted healing. He wanted a relationship. He wanted to help her identify the real source of her healing. She no doubt had real faith at the core here, but I think there was a lot of superstition here, a lot of magic. Where's Brady? I saw Brady on my way. Brady, good magic is all about the, the show a lot of times after the trick's done, Right? You'll do a trick right away and then put for 15 minutes, do all this other flim-flam, right? Right? Jesus isn't doing good magic, is he? Boom, she's healed. Right? Yeah, th this is not about the show. This is not magic. Did you notice? Pow, she's healed. Little girl, she's healed. He wants, he wants that woman to know this isn't magic. It wasn't my robe. It wasn't some incantation. It wasn't some magic. It was me. And your faith in me is the bottom line here. Now, in one sense, what she wanted was understandable. She wanted to slink away. She could have been in massive trouble with Jesus and the whole crowd for contaminating everybody with their uncleanliness. And, I mean, in one way, he would say, come on, Jesus. You know who it is. Just give her a little. <laughs> and let her slink away. That's the nice thing. Don't go public. Jesus loves her too much to let her slink away in private. He says, who did that? He's got more work to do in her life. He wants her to have deeper faith and an understanding. The source of her healing is himself. She needs faith in him. She needs to meet him. Oh, we go to God with all the things we want and need, but what we want and need most is him. Him, that's the source of joy in life and in heaven for all of eternity. It's God himself. We want healing. He loves us too much to leave us with just that. He's got a much better agenda for our lives than temporary solutions to temporary problems. See, Jesus demands of her she go public and, and take this to a place that's going to bring her to ultimate solutions and not just temporary ones. He's got this delay for Jairus. It's not what Jairus wanted. It's not what the disciples wanted. But he says, no, we're stopping. And actually, somebody pointed out in the first service, I think this is true. I bet the healing was part of Jairus' bolstered faith. The healing of the woman. He's giving him evidence when he says, don't be afraid, Jairus. Just believe. You just saw what I did for her. He's doing something much 
better and more important in Jairus and in, in this woman's life than what they even wanted. See, Jesus demands more of them. He demands a delay for Jairus in going public for this woman because he wants what's really important for them, a recognition that they need to trust him no matter what. God demands more than we ever thought. I remember, I, if, if somebody told me what the Christian life would require of me when I became a Christian as a kid, Jesus says count the cost. Jesus tells us it's costly to follow him, but so we don't have a clue what that means. The ways we're going to have to yield and die to self on a daily basis, and, and, but he wants what's best for us. He won't let us settle for our own agenda for our, our, ourselves. She wanted a miracle. He wanted a meeting. He put the focus on faith in him and relationship with him. Jairus wanted healing for his daughter. Jesus wanted a deeper faith for Jairus in him. And for us, as we read his story, it can be hard to hear, yeah, this is for you, but it's also for people who will read your story for millennia. This delay is for us, too. This, this uh, going public for this woman is for us, too. See, we want to manipulate everything. Our, our iPhones give us a sense we can do that. We can just control the world. I lost my laptop a while ago, and I went on my cell phone, and I erased it and locked it. I can control the world. We, we get this idea. Listen, listen to what Elizabeth Lash says. She said, we are taught that everything that is not us is there for us to be manipulated by us for our own ends. And you could actually start to believe that nonsense in this, this world of technology and conveniences. And we forget that we're not in control, and that's a really good thing. And that's not what's best for us. So we need to let God be sovereign in our lives and believe him when he says, don't fear, just believe. And God loves us too much to limit what he's doing in our lives to our plans and our goals and our timing in things. Jesus demands far more than you expect, and he gives infinitely more than you expect. What do I mean by that? He gives you more than you ever realized he was going to give when you came to him. Here's what we need. We don't need morals primarily. We don't need principles primarily. We don't need ideas. We need a father to love us. That's what we desperately need. We need a God who cares for us the way he cares for the people in this passage. We all need a tender father and savior to rescue us from the cold, harsh realities of life in this fallen world. And Jesus is that fatherly savior we desperately need. He comes as the Messiah mediating the fatherly care that he promised we would have in Psalm 103. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He loves like a father, and Jesus is the one who loves in this way. Is this just a beautiful image of touching this unclean woman and saying, you're healed. Your faith has healed you. And then he goes into this house. He sends the crowd away. And he goes to this little girl with just her parents and the three disciples in his closest intimate relationships. And he goes and he goes over to this little girl. And he says these Aramaic words which are tender and personal and actually so far from some mighty word from on high. You could translate it little lamb or little girl get up when we adopted caroline the first day see where are you back there kid 
Yeah, we adopted Caroline, and the first day, I just loved her so much. The day we picked her up, and I immediately started calling her little one. Little one, I still call her little one. She's 14. She's not nearly as little as she was. But at her wedding day, I will still call her little one. She'll always be little, and I call my other kids that too. They're these little ones, but, but these little ones, and, and this, sometimes I'll wake her up, and I'll go in in the morning and just touch her her face or stroke her hair, and I'll say, little one, it's time to get up. That really is how Jesus is talking to this little girl. She's died, and he says, oh, no, this is just temporary when I'm around. It's like she's sleeping. And he does, and, and he takes her hand, and he says, little one, honey, time to get up. This is what a parent would say to a child in the morning. Time to get up, little one. It's so tender. It, it's so personal. It's so um, non-big. Uh, it's just so t- little. It shows how powerful Jesus is. He says, okay, time to get up, honey. And she must be hungry. Make sure she has something to eat. So kind. See, that's what we need. Do you know this is the God of the Bible? That's how he talks to us. That's how he treats us. That's how he loves us. He says, get up, little one. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Just believe. Don't be afraid. It's it's all going to be okay. I know this world is filled with so many sources of fear, but don't fear them. You see, Jesus wants more for Jairus and the woman, and for you and me, than just temporary solutions to temporary problems. He wants us to depend on him for everything, especially what we need most, and that's restored relationship with him through his life and death in our place. Defeating death itself for us, not just temporarily. He wants more for these people and for us than they get in the story. He wants a deepening faith in him because the enemies they overcome in these stories are not their greatest enemies. I always have these mixed feelings when I read these miracle stories because I just put myself in their place. And I have actually right now have a 12-year-old daughter. Hi, 12-year-old daughter. And I, I think of Paige on her deathbed. Oh, You know, when my kids are hurting, I... I long for this ability to sort of do this Star Trek thing and just suck the pain into my body, right? I do. I would do that every time for them. But God in his kindness hasn't given parents that ability. He knows it's not best right now. Oh, there will come a day when all the pain will be gone and all the sin will be gone and death will be gone forever. And the way he got to that solution is by doing the very thing I just described. You know, the woman touches Jesus and he he feels a weakness, power goes out from him. Well, again, we see in Jesus' weakness, we become strong. We see in Jesus' death, we have life. Jesus has ultimate solutions. You know what he said? I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the author of life. I'm the first and the last. Listen to what he says in Revelation. It's just glorious. Don't be afraid. I'm the living one who died 
I'm alive forever, and I hold the keys of death in the grave. Jesus conquered death, and he's alive today. See, that's what we need a solution to, eternal death. Do you know every time I read these stories, I rejoice with these people, but I also have this feeling in my stomach, and I think, oh, the woman who was gloriously healed, she died. And the little girl was raised to life. I don't know how much longer after that, but she died too. They didn't get permanent solutions in these stories. They needed Jesus and faith in him because he's going to bring the permanent solution. Eternal life and eternal freedom from sin and death and hell, the grave, all the punishment for sin. He frees us from that. That's what we need. That's why he won't let them settle for the temporary. He points them to himself as the one who told us, oh, in this world you will have many troubles, but take heart. I've overcome the world. That's what he says, and so the bottom line is don't be afraid. What God is saying to you today, if you've never trusted Jesus, hear him as a tender father. No other religion has this kind of God. Do you know that? There is no other religion I've ever studied, and i studied a lot of them, that has this kind of God who's a loving father who comes to us and says, little one, get up. It's okay. I've overcome for you. So if you've never trusted Jesus, hear a tender voice of a father saying, little one, get up. You've been going it alone way too long. You can't solve your problems. You can't bring the solutions. Only I can. Little one, time to get up and walk with me and follow me and depend on Jesus. And if you are a believer, maybe you've been a believer a long time, but man, you feel the weight of this world and the brokenness of all of it. Little one, get up. Get up, your father's saying to you, oh, don't be afraid. Just trust me. I've overcome the world. Please don't leave here today unless you pray with someone if God's leading you in a way to, to get up in a new way and walk with him, either for the first time or in a renewed way because you really believe he's everything he says he is. Time to get up. Father, help us. We, we struggle. We struggle to believe. We, we struggle to uh, rest and have faith in you. Jesus is enough for us, and yet we so often doubt that. So, Lord, please enable us each to increasingly trade in our agendas and our timetable and our goals for our lives that we have and see that you love us too much to settle for those things. Lord, help us to joyfully, humbly, and confidently submit to your goals and plans and timing for our lives. Lord, I know some sitting before me have struggled mightily and even are right now. Lord, please don't hear a trivialization of those problems, but Lord, please hear the loving voice of a father saying, little one, get up. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.